Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to this edition of the What's Next Live podcast, where I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming back for the second time, Kim Scott, who has done some amazing work uh, around uh, radical candor and providing feedback and how to be better managers and leaders. And I've just loved her work for so long. Um, and so when I heard she had some new stuff coming out, I was like, Kim, got to come back. <laughs> So before we get started, let's make sure we ask everybody who's watching us uh, live to sort of share where you're joining us from. We always want to hear that as well. Please post your questions so that we can uh, get them to Kim right away. Uh, but before we get started, as you know, Kim, I love doing bullish and bearish, right? The two questions, bullish, you're for it, bearish, you're against it. We'll just, you know, sort of make it a little fun. The first one, are you ready? I'm ready. All I'm right. Ready. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Excellent. All right. Ready? First one. Remote work. Bullish or bearish? Bullish. I am for it. I'm never going back to an office again. Uh, I'm <laughs> staying here in my garage with my rocks that aren't rocks, but they're cushions. I love, I love the remote work thing. All right. The second one. Colonizing Mars. Bullish or bearish? Bearish. Bearish. It's too damn cold there. Uh, and I think, you know, I think a little bit on Earth, it is true that we have we've fouled our nest and we don't need to abandon it. We need to clean it up. That's a good one, too. That's a good one, too. And I was going to say the next one, bullish and bearish on remote education, because I think that's one that, you know, is sort of and you can kind of go in the middle because I think that's a loaded one anyway to, to answer so quickly. Yeah, you know, I gotta say, I have I have twins who are twelve, and I am very bearish on remote education. The children, children need to interact with one another. There's so much that we learn from being to being together in real life, and in in many ways, it's been delicious for me to be uh, quarantined with my uh, eleven and now twelve year olds because they still love me and. But they need other kids like they don't want to spend all this time with mom and dad. Uh, so so I think kids need other kids in order to learn how in, in order to learn how to be radically candid, in order to learn how to care personally and challenge directly. Well, I have to say that is the first time I think I've ever heard delicious <laughs> being used as a descriptor <laughs> for having your kids at home. Well, first. I, I really, you know, I'm grateful every day that they're not two and that they're not 18. It's a really nice age to hang out with your kids. All right. All right. Well, fair enough. Well, thank you for letting me sort of play a little you know, <laughs> game with you on Bullish and Bearish. Um, but, you know, I, for those of you who don't know who you are and don't know your work around Radical Candor, which I'd be surprised because it's just such an amazing, phenomenal book. Maybe you could sort of share with people sort of what the premise was of that and your work and how it landed in that fantastic book. Yeah, so the idea of radical candor, I think we all have, and certainly I did for much of my career, that's part of why I wrote the book. We all have so much dread around feedback at work. And yet when we can learn how to embrace it, that's how we do the best work of our lives and build the best relationships of our career. So in radical candor, I tried to come up with a simple framework that would help us know what to do. So the idea is you have to do two things at the same time. You need to care personally. You see, there's a two by, I always love good two by two. You need to care personally at the same time that you challenge directly. And when you can do both, it's radical candor. 
When you challenge but you forget to care, it's obnoxious aggression. Uh, there's other words for that. When you do neither, uh, when you neither care nor challenge, I call it manipulative insincerity. And these are, it's tempting to use these, these phrases to like hang as titles around people's necks. But I beg of you, don't use this framework that way. We all make these mistakes all the time. I certainly am manipulatively insincere at least once a day, although I try hard not to be. I also am obnoxiously aggressive at least once a day. And, the, but, but, and these are the mistakes that when we talk about things blowing up at work, it's fun to tell stories about people being a jerk or people being political, backstabbing, um, you know, untrustworthy. Those are the fun stories to tell, but those are not actually the big mistakes. The most common mistake is what I call ruinous empathy. And this is what happens when we do remember to show that we care personally, but we're so concerned about not hurting someone's feelings that we fail to tell them something they'd be better off knowing in the long run. So that's, that's what radical candor is and what it isn't in a nutshell. Well, I, I think if, if you might remember, we were having a little uh, Twitter conversation about having, you know, radical excellence, you know, yes. in the candor, right? Yes. Uh, and and how do you think can giving and providing feedback in that way, in a way that's authentic and helpful, um, even if it's hard, maybe has shifted because we are now working remotely, right? And we're working from anywhere. And that means managers aren't right next to you and teams aren't together and collaboration is different. So, what, what have you advised managers, leaders, you know, executives and companies during this time to remain radical yet empathetic? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's both both the care personally and the challenge directly have gotten harder in, uh, in, in these times. It is when, when you are remote, you lose the texture of real life. You, you lose that ability to walk by somebody in the hallway or bump into them in the micro kitchen and see, just notice that that they are feeling sad or elated or whatever it is that they're feeling. And, uh, and so that is gone. And at the same time, I, I've read that 40% of people right now are feeling some version of depression or anxiety. And so when we are all feel, and, and I don't know anybody who's sleeping well right now, <laughs> We're, we're, it's hard. This is a difficult time in history. And so our instinct is not to challenge directly when, when people, but, but this is the, this may be the time when we, we most need to challenge each other directly. So how can we do it in a way that is supportive? So I think in order to recreate some of the fabric of real life, I really recommend a couple of quick, I mean, there's a lot more to be said about this, but I recommend a couple of quick tactical things. One is instead of having a one-on-one -on -one with people once a week for 45 minutes, have two or three 10 minute meetings or even four 10 minute meetings throughout the week because a lot happens. Time has lost its meaning in this. <laughs> uh, and a lot happens in the course of a week. And so it's more important to have short uh, short sort of check-ins. And for, for people who have, uh, who have children at home, 45 minutes is a long time. 10 minutes is just easier to do. So that's one tactical thing. Check in more frequently, but for shorter periods of time for your one-on-one -on -one with folks. And then the other tactical thing that I really recommend, and this is both going to help you be more efficient and also help you uh, care personally. If you at the beginning of a staff meeting or any meeting that's, you know, somewhere between five and 15 people big, 
uh, if you can start with a check-in and let people say quickly what's going on for them, you actually will save time. Because what happens now is people come into a meeting and somebody is stressed out. And they're not stressed out because of what's happening in the, in the meeting. They're stressed out because their toddler's in the other room having, having a conniption fit or you know, or or they have a parent who's ill far away. There's so many, there's so many. And if you can give people the opportunity to explore, or maybe they're thrilled, maybe they're happy. So good things are happening now too, right? But if you can give people the opportunity to share a little bit about what's going on for them, then we don't blame ourselves when somebody seems pissed off in a meeting or somebody seems elated in a meeting uh, and, and we don't understand why. So it's actually more efficient to do those those check-ins. The, the final thing, the final small tactical thing I would say is while we're missing so much of the, of the fabric of real life, we're also gaining new insights. You're looking at me in my garage and, and a kid may walk behind me at some point or my dog may start barking and, and we can talk to each other about like, don't pretend those things aren't happening. Like you're in my garage, ask me about my garage. <laughs> well, I think that's fair. And I think it's been fantastic to watch how people have become more comfortable in the remote space. Uh, and tolerance is the wrong word, but I'm going to use tolerate, tolerant of those interruptions, like, yeah. you know, a child, a pet, a sound, whatever it might be, yeah. um, you know, or the camera going on and off because someone's <laughs> trying to deal with whatever's yeah. happening. Yeah. Uh, but I think that leads us to the next topic, which, yes. uh, you know, is your latest effort in your latest book. And I'm going to invite your co-author in, Trier Bryant. Welcome to What's Next Live. Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, this is fantastic. This is the first time I've had two guests on this uh, live show. So it's fun to sort of see how it all worked out. Um, but we've got people, I've got uh, people viewing us from Minnesota, from Paris, France, from Houston. We've got people from all over the world. But since we're talking about this global conversation, Trier, I said, I love your name. What is the origin? And you said, Trier is the city that I was born in, in Trier, Germany. Not what I expected you to say <laughs> at all, right? But what a great, what a great story. Yeah. So even though I was in the military, my parents were there as civilians selling insurance to expats and military folks that were there. And then I was born there and, um, and then I joined the military. But like I said, I'm the first person in my family to serve. So, well, thank you for your service. And thanks for joining us here today. So, you know, so Kim, let's let's dive into this new new work. You know, the book Just Work, uh, and sort of step us through what brought you here and kind of the thoughts behind it. Sure. So if you write a book about feedback, you're going to get a lot of it, and uh, and that was true. As I wrote Radical Candor, I was out doing talks and workshops in the world, and I was uh, I was at one point in San Francisco doing a workshop, a Radical Candor workshop at a tech company. And when, when I was the, the CEO of the company was a former colleague of mine who I'd known for the better part of a decade and uh, and one of too few black women in tech. And when I finished giving the, the workshop, she pulled me aside and she said, you know, Kim, I really like Radical Canner. It's going to help me build the culture I want. But I got to tell you, it's much harder for me to put it into practice than it is for others, because as soon as I, no matter how compassionate I am when I deliver the candor, 
I, as soon as I do, I get signed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I, I knew this was true. And I also had the sudden realization that I had not recognized the hardship and, and, and the toll this must have taken on her uh, all the time we worked together. I had known her, as I said, for the better part of a decade, and I had never seen her seem even the slightest bit irritated. And believe me, she had what to be irritated about in that period of time. And then she said to me, she said, Kim, and furthermore, I bet it's harder for you to put it into practice than it is for your husband, who's a white engineer in Silicon Valley. And I realized, of course, she was also correct about that. And I had, this is very hard for the author of Radical Candor to admit, but I had never, I had been in denial about the impact of gender in my own career. Like, not only was I not admitting what was happening to her, I wasn't admitting what was happening to my own self. And, and so that was kind of, that was a big part of what prompted me to write uh, Just Work. The, uh, and what prompted me to start this company with Trier, Just Work, is that the other bit of feedback I got after writing Radical Candor is that people don't change their behavior because they read a book. This is also hard for an author to admit because you want them to like you want. I think I've explained it all and just go do it. <laughs> and that's not the way it works. And so Trier, you can talk about your experience of reading the book and why we started the company together. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I when I read the book, Just Work, I was I as Oprah says, I had an aha moment. And it really forced me to sharpen my perspective on my own experiences at work and to really reflect on, hey, was it bias, prejudice, bullying, or when you introduce power into it, was it discrimination, harassment, or a physical violation? And so one of the things that really stuck out to me um, was the bullying part. You know, Tiffany, if you had asked me at any point in my career, have you been bullied, Trier? I would say, no. Have you met me? Have you worked with me? Like, you come for me, I'm going to come right back, right? And then you read Kim's book, and it's like, outside of basic training in the military, where it's designed to be bullying, um, I've really been bullied a lot in my career. And, and, and it was harder to just really admit that I didn't stand up for myself because I couldn't name it in that way and I didn't do anything about it. And then as a leader, what I didn't do to prevent these workplace injustice from occurring within the organizations that I was leading. Yeah, well, I think it's been, there's a couple things, you know, these kind of microaggressions, uh, you know, as communication styles, as, you know, unintended sort of, you know, kind of affronts to people. Uh, I'd say on my own journey in the last 12 months since everything happened with George Floyd and, and everything since and the last summer and um, the, the protests and all of that, like I went on my own journey of like, wow, have... Have I had that happen to me? Have I done that to other people? Am I completely unaware of, you know, what I'm saying and doing? And even in radical candor, right? Like sharing a feeling, am I saying it in the right tone and the right way? Am I being empathetic to who is on the other side of that comment? And am I paying attention to that where some unconscious bias has made me say something and it gets interpreted by no means how I meant it, but it doesn't matter how I say it. It's much more important how it's received. And so how do you sort of take somebody who, or say to someone who's starting to become more reflective of how they communicate and engage at work in a way that doesn't make people feel that way, Trier? Any, any yeah. either one of you, any ideas or comments or sort of 
quick hits? Yeah, so spot on. It's not about the intent. It's really about the impact, right, of what we say in our actions. And we know that we need to, we all have to do the work. And so, again, Kim's book talks about all the different roles, right? So are you the person who was harmed? Are you the person who was causing the harm? Are you a upstander that actually intervenes and then, you know, it's an active bystander. So we want to encourage everyone to be upstanders. Or are you a leader in your responsibilities to prevent these things from happening? And what are the mechanisms and structures that you put in place? But what, you know, I appreciate everyone who's been reflecting um, since last year, whatever it is that has, you know, ignited that personal reflection. But then also as leaders and decision makers within organizations, we really have to pause and understand that we have to make changes at a structural level, cultural level, and an individual level. And just work is a framework. It's not a silver bullet, but it's a framework to help us think about those solutions, how we can start to change those attitudes and behaviors. I, I think, Tiffany, you said something that was really important and maybe worth double clicking on. How do we do this in a way that is not going to be uncomfortable? I don't think I do not. I do not offer. I do not offer emotional Novocaine. There's no way to do it. Uh, and if you think about if you think about like if you were going to get into shape and you were going to start running the first time you run five miles, you're going to be sore. This is this is going to sting a little bit. And the question is, how can we build stamina to have these conversations? And it's also true for radical candor. I say that also that like when you hear that you've screwed something up, it's going to sometimes feel like a gut punch. But also when you learn to trust your colleagues, you're going to be happy about it because you've learn something that's going to make you better. And so I'll just give you a simple, a really simple example. We, Trier and I talk a lot and we work with companies to identify bias interrupters. There's a lot of research that shows that unconscious bias training can leave people feeling helpless. Like, oh, it's inevitable. It's the way my brain works. There's nothing I can do. And that's not true. We can, we can, we can change the way our minds work and we can change our vocabulary. It's not actually that hard to change your vocabulary, but you've got to become aware of the things you're saying. So I will, I will share something biased that I said yesterday that Trier pointed out to me and I was great. I was grateful to her. I mean, it was, I didn't like hearing that I had said something, but I was talking about my calendar and I said, Oh, I'm a slave to my calendar. And that kind of language makes light of a terrible institution and I, I just was unaware that I was using the word in that way. And it only took a second. I think we talked about it for two minutes less. I, I don't know, Tria, how long would you say that? Guy? It was very brief. Uh, but, but it will, and, and I hope I never use that word in that way again. But I also have great confidence that if I do, Trier will point it out to me or somebody will point it out to me. And by the way, it shouldn't in an ideal world, it shouldn't have had to be Trier who pointed it out. But it, it, if there had been another white person in the room, it would have been better if, a, if, if an upstander had pointed it out. And or an ally, right? Which I think, which I think is just absolutely critical, you know, to have these kinds of conversations. Navigating it is difficult, Kim. I mean, like I've said that term and until you said that, really, I was like, these little isms or these little ways that we say things very quickly, you don't realize, you know, um, you know, I, when you were saying that literally on in my mind, uh, the, the, the sort of ism of, you know, they've totally gone off the plantation. Yes. Another one. Totally gone off the reservation, which I heard on the news last night. And I, in my mind immediately I went, 
Maybe yeah, not bad choice of words, you know, right? And so, but I feel like there's this backlash as well. Like, are we overcorrecting? I'm not saying that that's how I feel. I'm just saying there are some that will say we're overcorrecting. And Trier, I'd, I'd love to hear from you how how to sort of balance that conversation, especially in a work environment. Yeah, I think that you know it's interesting because your proximity to working to people who come from different environments and cultures and have different perspectives is also going to be your proximity to you experiencing these bias um, or exhibiting the bias. So if we were in a homogenous group of, you know, individuals and someone may not have called out that term or phrase, but we are striving to have more inclusive teams and we are striving to have more diverse teams. And look, I can acknowledge that the first time that I had um, someone who, you know, a Jewish person on my team, I had a lot of bias and they called me out and we had to build the rapport and the trust to build, you know, to build that environment and that culture of respect and dignity that we can take that into consideration. I don't think it's about an overcorrection. I think it's about a, a, a inclusion. It is about re recognizing, you know, that we all haven't had experiences. The the other thing that's interesting when people talk about an overcorrection, um, I always use the example of like, you know, there is this expectation for black professionals to understand white culture and to be able to talk about white culture in a business setting, a work dinner, a meeting. Hey, how's things going on? But is there the same expectation for white professionals to understand black culture at, at, to kick off a meeting or at a dinner, right? And so just understanding that and thinking about it and being cognizant of it is that the extra labor and the work that underrepresented professionals have to do, non-white professionals have to do, the language that they hear, the triggers that it is, again, it is about like, we have always felt this way, we have always seen that, but now it is about how is everyone doing their part to acknowledge this workplace injustice, understand the role they play, and for us all to do better. Because it's not its not a sprint, but it's also not a marathon, because for those of us who run a marathon, there's an in-destination thing. <laughs> this is work that we have to be committed to our entire lives. Especially because I'd say we spend so much of our lives at work. Yes. And a lot of our relationships that we have, that we form over time, happen at work. Many people meet their spouses and significant others at work. You know, the networks that they form help them, you know, move in their career at work. You know, lots of life lessons I have had and experiences I've had, I wouldn't have had personally, I have professionally. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting to move between the professional sort of conversation tone into the personal and then back, you know, especially if you, it's not consistent. It, it, does that, does that make sense? What I was just describing? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the one of the joys, it is work, but it is also pleasure to expand your horizon and understand other cultures. Like why do we love to travel? It's because we love to see something new. And we don't we don't have to we, we can get to know new people and new cultures. It's the joy of a diverse team. Not only is it is it more effective? There's a lot of research that shows this, but it's it's more fun. Uh, and and I think part of what Trier and I want to do is share that share that fun and that joy as well as the work. Well, I'd love for you guys to just sort of you know obviously read the book, just work, um, you know, and then you know if you're looking for ways in which you can improve on this conversation, 
you know, Kim Trier, this is a great opportunity for you to do that. But what would be, you know, over the last sort of as the book is launched, leading up to the book is like, what has been two things? One, what's been most surprising to you that people have said and learned out of this? And then what did you think was going to be really big that kind of people are like, yeah, yeah, not so interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to, one of you can pick one and one of you can pick the other. So you guys choose which one wants to take the, you were totally surprised. And then, you know, you were uh, not sure why people didn't think it was that interesting. Kim, go for the not interesting one. So one of the things that I thought was that I really believed the book would do is by telling all the stories, not all the stories actually, because the book would been too long, but the many stories of my experiences with bias, prejudice, bullying, I thought people would come away saying, oh my gosh, like now I understand what it's like to be a, a woman in the workplace. And, uh, and a bunch of men who read the book did not have that. <laughs> they, uh, they didn't have that response to it that I was, that I was hoping for. So that, so that was, uh, that, that was surprising at the same time, the, uh, on the positive side that I was talking to a bunch of older, very conservative men and they were, they were reading one of the stories and they were like, Oh, there's no one person to blame for what happened to Kim. There was systemic injustice. And I'm like, yes, you get it, systemic injustice. So there's been some pleasant surprises as well. All right, Trier, I'm going to ask you the same thing on the flip. Yeah, so I think what's been most surprising, especially for companies and organizations within the tech industry, um, you have leaders that pride themselves in being so data-driven and we're data-driven and making data-driven decisions. And so one of the actions that we talk about in the book is quantifying and measuring bias. But yet leaders are so hesitant to do that. The ones that are so data driven, but they don't want to actually measure the bias within the organization, within hiring. Like, are you only interviewing a certain type of a profile? Are you only hiring a certain type of a profile? Who are you promoting? Who are you paying? Um, who are you mentoring? There's so many ways to where you can quantify the bias so that you know where to actually take those actionable steps. And then the other thing that's been surprising is it's really been a spectrum We've had some organizations and leaders that say, yes, please come and teach our employees how to name these workplace injustices so that we can actually solve them and, you know, handle it and, and, and be there for our employees and create a more inclusive and trusting work culture. And then there's been some organizations that have just said, ooh, yeah, um, maybe not, maybe not to tell our employees how to name this? Like, are we really prepared when everyone says, oh, well, yeah, actually yesterday what I experienced was prejudice. Yesterday what I experienced was harassment. It was bullying with power on top of it. So um, that's actually been kind of surprising that, that some organizations or leaders have responded in that way. I think the bottom line for me and everything you guys have just said, and I, and I, and I definitely would say me personally, it's been something I've really worked on is self-awareness. Yes. And very few of us can be self-aware alone. That's also where we require our colleagues to help us to, to hold up a mirror for us. Yeah. And, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a journey, like you said, you know, running a five. So I love how you say, you know, running a five mile race and, you know, getting to the end, I would be crawling on the five mile <laughs> race, but I get the point. I get the point, but I'd say I kind of call it a muscle and you have to work it out and yeah. it's be sore and then you'll get stronger and then you'll try something else and you'll be sore again. And you're just, it's always this, you know, really trying to build this muscle of 
self-awareness, understanding, listening, empathy, all. And sometimes that's a lot. Like now I find myself, uh, and I don't know how others feel listening to this, but sometimes I find myself not saying something because I'm working so hard to say it in a way that I'm intending for it to say, as you said, Tria, right? The How it's received, not just the intention, but that's the yeah. And the other thing, Tiffany, is that, you know, a phrase that I always leave people that can go so far is to simply say, I'm listening, right? Like we're going to cause harm. It may be biased and we don't mean it, but to say, oh, thank you for bringing that to my attention. I'm listening. Tell me more. And that can just really open up a conversation to learn, to be more self-aware and then to start thinking about how you can change your behaviors and actions. Well, this has been fantastic. Always too short, never enough time. But I would love for each of you to leave sort of one parting thought of what people can do who have been, you know, listening to us today. Um, besides, as I said, read the book, uh, which both of them, because uh, a radical candor was was awesome. I met you in a workshop. That's right. You know, I work for Salesforce, and we, you know we champion every day. But we're learning, right? And we're getting better and better. Um, in all the things we're doing, but what would be your one uh, thing you would leave behind? And I'll start with you, Kim. So what I would leave behind is try to think of a time when you expressed bias and you felt terribly remorseful, but it worked out. Like the person told you and you all got to a better place. Try to think of a positive story and that positive story is going to give you courage to ask for more feedback, to become more self-aware, but it'll also give you compassion when you have to point out someone else's, because we're all on both the giving and the receiving end of these things. And I think the more compassion we have for ourselves and others, the, the easier it'll be to, to move to a better place. All right, Trier, how about you? Yeah, I think reflecting on everything, um, one of the things that Kim and I really want to encourage everyone is to end the default to silence. A lot of times we end up, whether any of the roles that you may be in, we default to silence because we don't know what to say because we're afraid. So let's get comfortable with that discomfort and let's end the default to silence and let's speak up and let's stand up and step into that power. Well said. Well said. I always say get comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's sort of job number one every day. If you're constantly comfortable, then you're not stretching and trying new things. Yeah, and growing, right? Right. All right. With that, ladies, it has been an absolute pleasure. The day after International Women's Day, I just want to say I'm grateful for you two for spending time with us and sharing this story. And I can't wait to finish reading the book because I started it. I haven't finished it yet. Too many, too many things going on, but I will. Um, and so for all of you for joining us, I'm grateful for you. I hope you enjoyed my time with Kim Scott and Trier Bryant and you enjoyed the information they shared. So thank you for spending time with us. Thank you, ladies. Have a great rest of your day. Tiffany, so grateful to you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. <laughs>